Welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm Patrick, the CEO of Sano Genetics, and I'm really excited to be here with Dr. Masa Shabani today. Dr. Shabani is a researcher at the Center for Biomedical Ethics and Law at the University of Leuven in Belgium. Her research work focuses on data sharing and involvement of patients in research, particularly in genomics research recently. So I'm very excited to have her on the show today. She recently put out a paper about how participants can be ethically remunerated for sharing data and research studies. We're going to talk a lot about that today, um, but we'll see where the conversation goes. So Masa, it's really great to have you on the show. Thanks a lot. And thanks a lot for the invitation. I'm really happy to be with you today. Of course. So just to get started, would you mind giving me a quick background of how you got into uh, this field in the first place? Yeah, sure. So this has been indeed a kind of extension of the research that I've been, I've been doing in the last couple of years, starting from my somehow my master's thesis and then my PhD, which was uh, really based on the importance of access to large scale genomic data, which is uh, seemed to be very important uh, because yeah, we know that we really need to have access to large scale genomic databases in order to improve the interpretation of the results. And uh, this has been indeed in the recent years um, took this turn that so technology is getting cheaper and cheaper so we can really sequence more individuals now but still the interpretation is lagging behind and uh, some part of the problem is uh, related to the fact that uh, these uh, data sets are uh, indeed stored in uh, silos and not all researchers have access to the data sets from the other researchers so this means that still there are very uh, indeed significant hurdles uh, in front of the researchers and also clinicians who have access to such genomic data. So for people who aren't familiar with it, do, would you mind giving an overview of what are the largest genomic data sets out there and, and who has access to them, I guess, to the best of, of your understanding? Yeah. So, um, so basically, you know that like every year there are many uh, research groups or indeed uh, receiving funding, for example, from the, all these big funding organizations like NIH or in the EU from the European Commission. So they can actually, and there are so many resources for developing really so many different scales of genomics studies. And of course, some of them are more familiar for some people because they are mostly also set up in the population level. Uh, some of the very recent ones are, the, for example, All of Us project in the U.S. or the uh, H3 Africa, which is uh, more really based on the uh, data from the African continent, indeed. And um, also uh, some uh, very famous examples, for example, in the U.K., like the U.K. Biobank project or uh, 100,000 uh, uh, Genome Project, which was uh, organized by the Genome England. So these are the really very famous ones, but it's not really just limited to this. Um, these are mostly more known because they are more like large scale projects. But of course, like researchers in all these different universities, different research settings, and also in the private uh, entities, they are indeed busy with the differences of uh, genomic studies. So, and the consequence is that they are actually generating genomic data and uh, relevant, indeed, health data on a daily basis. Right, and so I guess you mentioned three of three kind of big publicly funded projects, and those have on the scale of the UK Biobank has about half a million people. Yes. All of us in the US is planning to enroll about a million people or over a million people. I think they've done 100,000 
um, tests so far, but yes. then the uh, maybe the the elephant in the room is the direct consumer genetic testing companies, right? Like Twenty Three and Me or Ancestry yes. DNA that have an order of magnitude more than that, eight to ten to fifteen million, depending on who you ask, right? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Just the way of all these, uh, I mean, um, I mean, the nature of probably the service is just a bit different in the direct right. consumer companies because actually the consumers pay to indeed buy these kits and uh, to receive this service. But uh, as a consequence of this, uh, of course, the consumer um, genetic testing companies are able also to, uh, yeah, develop databases based on the consumer's uh, data. Right. And I guess maybe yeah. this is a great segue into your most recent paper. I think it's actually, I think it's the most recent one. It only came out. Uh, yes. Yeah, November. that's true. And, and in the paper you talked about, so, so there are tens of millions of people who've been tested by direct consumer genetic testing companies. Now there are a number of startup companies that have um, come up allowing people to monetize that data. So you can download your data from 23andMe, for example, mm-hmm. and upload it to a number of different places um, who, who ostensibly will help you sell that data to researchers. And, and in the paper, you kind of go through some of the ethical concerns with these models or, or how, you know, ethical concerns that might develop. I was wondering if you could just give us a quick overview of that. Sure. Yeah. So in this paper, which I wrote it together with my excellent master's student, Iman, we looked at uh, these recent initiatives that they are kind of starting from this point that, well, if as a consumer of consumer of all these uh, companies, you are actually, uh, first of all, you are paying for the test, but at the same time, you're or just making it possible for those companies to actually benefit from uh, your uh, data. So why not we think uh, indeed about a new uh, or different model of business model, let's say, which uh, hopefully at the end will result in uh, making uh, all these uh, data sets uh, more accessible for the different research purposes, for example. So uh, as a result, we've seen that indeed uh, there are of course, this is very uh, new in a sense. I think it's really just a couple of years ago, this has been started with a number of initiatives like Nebula Genomics or uh, Luna DNA. These are the, like some of the examples that uh, they argue that it should be a model in place that uh, would let the individuals who have access to their own um, sequence data, which they get it from the different uh, sequencing um, or data consumer testing companies, they should be able to indeed, in a sense, control this data. And that's also a keyword there. And to be able to um, make it accessible to um, different interested parties, but at the same time to um, indeed set in place some um, um, incentives, mechanisms, or let's say motivations for such individuals. Uh, that in return to um, sharing their data or making their data accessible to um, interested companies or uh, researchers, be able also to receive some rewards. And so the central ethical challenge that it seems like you identified here is, is, so there are these companies that are offering to remunerate people in a marketplace mm-hmm. for, their, for their genetic data. And I suppose it's, it's, it's about why people are choosing to participate, right? If the financial reward is so high that people might be coerced into participating, yes. then it's then then there are ethical issues. But if it's you know maybe if it's small enough, or if the motivation is primarily yeah. altruism or something else, how do you think about 
those two pros and cons and, and weighing them up practically. Exactly. So, I mean, if you look at the old discussion about research ethics in general, which is not new, uh, always the uh, topic of uh, uh, giving monetary incentives in the conventional research setting has been a sensitive issue. And uh, indeed, uh, this is uh, mainly because it, um, uh, there is indeed the concern that this may unduly uh, influence the research participants and they may actually uh, decide to participate, not necessarily uh, based on really informed decision, but uh, under the influence of uh, receiving these indeed, um, monetary incentives, let's say. Uh, but of course, uh, when it comes to, so we've been previously thinking uh, more in the conventional research setting, right? It was more also thinking about more like an interventional or more invasive research uh, type that uh, they had more uh, physical harms of implications for the individuals that they were taking part in the research. But now we are really speaking about more of a kind of a data donation, uh, if you will, or more like participation. Uh, based on uh, just uh, you know just sharing their data or uh, giving access to their data. So right. They, I, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, please. I was just going to say the I suppose the traditional um, way of thinking about it was often patients were being reimbursed for their time or for mm -hmm. going to a lab, like you say. But when it becomes you click a button and share it, then then the value of the data is kind of decoupled from people's time, right? So how much is how how much is our data actually worth, or is it is it really clear? Did you did you look at this in your research? Yeah. So basically, uh, as I mentioned again, these are the initiatives that they are just starting, and I'm not sure even all of them have a very clear idea that how they are going actually to evaluate the value of uh, these uh, data sets, because you can easily also argue that. Uh, these data sets, if they have been put together, so we are, we are speaking about larger scale genomic studies, we are really speaking about hundreds and thousands of uh, data sets. They are valuable. But what if we just talk about really one small data set from each individual? Does it really still valuable if we really look at it in that way? So uh, this is, yeah, so I think that uh, what has been uh, indeed uh, tried so far has been really thinking about different ways of rewarding. And one of them, which I think that it will more take off, probably it's more like really just um, uh, a kind of uh, offering free sequencing in exchange for data. So, right. yeah, this is what I see that, for example, it's more likely that's going to happen. I see. So rather than actually paying people, then you work out a sweet spot where researchers fund the, the cost of sequencing. But what, what then would happen after someone, because you only need to be sequenced once, right? From, from that point, would, um, would you sort of give access to researchers, give access to your data indefinitely? or Well, well the thing is that also, although sequencing data it's in itself it's uh, interesting and valuable for the researchers, but it's also more interesting when you couple it with more health-related data. So for that reason, it's, uh, it's more interesting for these uh, uh, companies or researchers to also to keep this, let's say, uh, data collection relationship with individuals in a, a long uh, indeed, um, period. And uh, from time to time, for example, ask them to fill out some questionnaires and then you know, just provide more information about their lifestyle and health-related information. And medical history so it's 
yeah, it's, I think it's naive to think that it's really just limited to the one time just sequencing data. There, there, on a similar topic, there are a lot of healthcare systems like um, the 100,000 Genomes Project or Genomics England here in the UK that are starting to think about how they can make use of the incredible amount of data that they have and commercialize it mm -hmm. in a way that feeds money back into the national healthcare yeah. system or into the Department of Health. There's same thing going on in several healthcare systems in the US. I imagine there might be examples in Belgium as well. What, what are your thoughts on, on this model? And, and it's a little bit different because there's often no patient in the loop. They've donated, you know, they've donated their data in a sense by participating in the healthcare system long ago. Yes. So basically, there are um, so many different issues that they play a role when there, is, there are some plans for such and commercializing, commercializations of the indeed, uh, research data. Um, I think um, one of the problematic aspects of this um, endeavor is that um, sometimes it comes as a surprise for the patients or the individuals. So they, this is something that they were not expecting that's going to happen. And uh, this is sometimes collides with this idea of, uh, so if you are indeed part of this uh, research project, this is going to eventually, you know, for the public benefit. So, and now we are speaking about this partnership and uh, there are some always, uh, let's say, yeah, it's concerns that uh, what would be the final indeed uh, the, um, implications for the, uh, the, for this public funded research, because we're always, there are some kind of uh, indeed misgivings when uh, commercial parties are involved in the biomedical research. So what indeed can help there, it's uh, definitely, it's really uh, transparency. It's a, in a sense that you really need to explain very well that uh, what are these plans, how would be the final, let's say, benefit sharing between these uh, different parties that they are involved in uh, such a partnership. Um, but of course, uh, again, it just brings to the fore the question about that how much individuals can still Keep, uh, control on their data. Right. I think the, the 100,000 Genomes Project in Genomics England is actually a really good example of, of doing it right, like you described, because they have a very clear consent form and patients have to opt in to share. Um, it's not like other cases where, you know, you've, you've basically you're just part of the healthcare system and at some mm -hmm. point in the past you've consented and, and therefore people have access. So I, I, I think I agree with you that I see this as a as a really good model going forward. Yeah, yeah. So, but uh, it's also foreseen that in many of the uh, countries that they have universal healthcare system. Uh, so it means that it's uh, the, often the yeah. Sometimes at least uh, the consent model is uh, opt out as well. So it means that uh, when you are indeed uh, being admitted to the hospital, uh, so it's um, yeah. The it's kind of expectation that uh, your data can be used uh, for the scientific research purposes. Uh, uh, but of course, you are also aware that you are kind of trusting those uh, institutions in the sense that you you know that they have also some uh, mechanisms in place that they make sure that uh, this research is you know is going to eventually uh, be in the interest of the public benefit. And uh, so it's yeah, it's more than consent probably. It's right. also just yeah. And it, and it needs to be ongoing in some sense, right? That it's, uh, you, you're, you're consistently aware of what's happening and you're able to make choices and evolve over time, right? 
Yes, yeah, 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 of course. This is uh, something that is uh, always you have this ongoing, let's say, uh, relationship with the places that you go and you, uh, you receive your healthcare services. And uh, of course, you want to make sure that uh, all these data that's been collected and increasingly through the different devices, through different uh, ways, uh, it will be used in a way that uh, you, it doesn't upset you. <laughs> I was wondering, you mentioned this in, in the paper, and I think it's topical because there was recently an a, a amazing story about it in the NHS here in the UK, but you mentioned in the paper some questions around how we deal with genetic data from family members. So mm -hmm. a few weeks ago, there was a story of a woman whose father was diagnosed with Huntington's disease, um, and he asked his doctors not to share that data with his daughter, not to share the diagnosis with the daughter. Um, and now she's, I believe, suing the NHS because she felt that they had a duty to tell her that she was at risk and she was, I believe, pregnant at the time. So how, do you, how does that fit in and, and how do you think about some of these really challenging issues? Yeah, that's a, actually a great question. Always it's an ongoing discussion when we are speaking about genomic data that how far you can really consider this data as really purely individual data because we know that it has implications for the family members and their blood relatives and of course also we sometimes also think about more like also the implications for the ethnic groups that you know that can such studies can for example just draw some conclusions that has some implications for them so this is indeed again poses another question when it comes to the discussion about uh, managing your uh, genomic data or sharing your uh, genomic data that the question here is that um, how far you can really just leave this decision to the individuals how far do you really need also to discuss that for example uh, they have to consult or they have to at least discuss their decisions about how they are going to share their data with, the, with their relatives, for example, because it has also some implications for them. Uh, but of course, uh, here I think we are a little bit short of the, um, the let's say, uh, approaches or safeguards that they can help us to make this decision as a, like really a, a joint decision between the individuals and their family members. Even, I mean, still there's a question that should they do that? Is it really still can be considered as individual data? But if we, if if, uh, if our answer is positive to that question, that they have to uh, indeed discuss it with the family members, then often there is a question of how uh, this is going to happen. Um, and we see that, for example, it has had some more like uh, obvious implications in the, for example, the case of Match last year, uh, that uh, they indeed police could solve some uh, cold cases. Of the uh, from the crime scene because they could actually upload this data on uh, some genealogy databases and they could find the, indeed the suspect um, or the, the person that indeed committed the crime uh, through their uh, I think third cousin or so on. So it was basically this happened because a distant family member actually shared uh, their uh, genetic data online on an open access database. So it was of course it was a very let's say, uh, yeah, maybe a very extreme case um, in a sense, but in general, it just shows that how we are indeed sharing this information that is coming from our genomic information uh, with our relatives. Right. And what do you see as the, as the primary concern on both sides? So if we take the, um, 
the Golden State Killer and and mm-hmm. and all of the um, subsequent uses of publicly available genetic data to basically triangulate in on these cold cases. One side of the argument it feels like is is saying it's so obvious we're catching you know cold case murderers. Yes. We need to be using this. But the other side it seems like yeah. is arguing towards a slippery slope that yes it makes sense in this specific case, but giving unfettered access to this level of individual data will certainly be misused in the future. How do you see that debate playing out? And, and, and do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's exactly what you said, that it's, it always starts with uh, some, uh, I mean, at least in the uh, Golden State Killer case, we were very, um, I mean, somehow obvious that, okay, it was, very, it was for a good cause and it was really serious crime was involved. Uh, and why not? I mean, it helped the police uh, to, right. to, to come into conclusion in that case. But um, <clears throat> of course, and then the, the immediate second question is that where we are going to stop because it actually helped the police in other cases that they were much less serious uh, indeed um, crimes. And then you start to think that, okay, <clears throat> are we moving from the uh, point that we say, this can help occasionally police in solving some very serious crimes to the point that, well, we can actually um, consider it as one way uh, that can be um, indeed used as a default option uh, in the police investigation. So then uh, the next probably um, indeed uh, step would be then why not to actually develop these databases in a more systematic way rather than just really relying on a uh, random, you know, uh, referring to some of the available databases. So it's always, I think, there is a question of like uh, where we are starting and, and where we are going to end, and whether or not this uh, indeed um, the potential indeed uh, um, in, in way that we will be ending up, it's desirable or not, both from the uh, ethical perspective and also its implications for uh, indeed for society in general. Right. And I guess the vast majority of the direct-to-consumer genetic testing companies have said very publicly that they won't allow data to be used for this purpose. But there is one very large public database that has more or less embraced it, right? So, mm-hmm. But I, I suppose the way the math works and the way you can triangulate people based on distant relatives that mm-hmm. you don't need that many people in a database if you have you know, upwards of a million people, then yeah. you can start to identify almost anyone in the U.S., for example, with, with pretty reasonable certainty. Yes, and the, uh, plus that I think for the law enforcement purposes, I think they can resist to some extent, but um, I'm not sure that always uh, they can really make a good case if there is an official, for example, request uh, to have access to right. these databases. Right, so they can say we're not going to give it up willingly, but if they get a court order, then... yes. Yeah, yeah. Are, have there been any examples, public examples of this happening or do they, or is it, or is it something mm-hmm. that they wouldn't then disclose publicly? Um, well, that's indeed uh, something that, because in a, another paper that uh, hopefully will come soon, we actually looked at the uh, policies and practices of the direct-to-consumer genetic testing companies and also uh, some of these genealogy databases to see that how actually they are dealing with uh, this right. issue. Uh, and uh, you see that they actually take different approaches that uh, from the point from um, one view that they are indeed promising that they will resist and 
uh, if there is such a request, they would try to communicate this or just give some notice, for example, uh, that there is such a request uh, to the point, I mean, to the other approaches that they are more uh, indeed willing that if there is uh, indeed such a good cause, let's say that, uh, and it's uh, for public interest, then uh, they would be uh, willing to disclose uh, the data. Um, so, but uh, if you yeah, follow this uh, discussion, uh, which mostly uh, focus on some of these genealogy databases like uh, uh, family tree DNA and also uh, GEDmatch, you see that like every couple of days, uh, sometimes there is a new uh, case or development that uh, it receives a lot of also public attention that Wow. Uh, yeah, whether or not this is... Every, every couple of days, there's a new... Well, I mean, it depends how you are sensitive yeah. to this topic. Sometimes I think that this is really changing fast, and especially, I think, for a period also, I was uh, observing that they were changing their policies also very quite right. often, and it was mostly just showing that they are responding to, uh, indeed, to cases that's happening, uh, and they want to accommodate, for example, this... I, mean, I guess it's hard to have this discussion without talking about blockchain as well. And it's something that you've written about and, and it's a word that people often comes to mind today when we start talking about these issues of privacy and ownership and who has access. What are your thoughts on blockchain as a, as a potential enabling solution to this? And, and maybe if you could just give a kind of brief overview of what, what a blockchain is or, or what the class of technology is if, if people aren't super familiar with it. Yes, yeah. Uh, so the idea that indeed we uh, also um, were interested to include this in our paper, and it was also another short paper that I wrote um, yeah, last year, uh, it was uh, coming from this uh, fact that, um, well, we know, I mean, it is also very controversial and some people, they really consider all this technology as really hype and they don't see that uh, this is uh, indeed uh, going to take off. But uh, the idea that uh, indeed made, uh, made it really interesting for me that I don't have any background in um, um, uh, ICT technologies, uh, but more from the ethics and law was um, indeed uh, coming up with this more like technological solution to the problem that we are dealing in mostly the governance of the data sharing or data control. And the idea was that, well, why not think about really a decentralized or uh, indeed a system which uh, would allow indeed uh, different um, blocks, let's say, uh, to be part of this uh, platform, uh, but we don't have any really, we won't have any centralized indeed uh, block to uh, manage access to this uh, database. So this was really a general idea about um, uh, blockchain. Um, and um, the idea is that uh, uh, this is really also increasing transparency in a sense because and all these transactions are on these uh, platforms are indeed, uh, you can just record them uh, on all these uh, ledgers. And also it's very difficult actually to, to uh, indeed, uh, in a very uh, in a simple way to hack this system, let's say. So we are really increasing also in a sense the, uh, the, mm, mm, let's say, the security of these uh, platforms. And uh, so why not to use uh, this, uh, the same uh, technology for such a sensitive, to management at least, of such sensitive data when it comes to the genomics, and uh, let also the mm, different, uh, mm, let's say, uh, parties that are interested to be part of 
this uh, management of uh, data access to be part of this uh, indeed uh, platform rather than just limiting it to the researchers to control who can have access to data for which purposes, which uh, obviously it's not really working very well. Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a hard problem to solve, isn't it? I, I suppose my thoughts on blockchain specifically is that it's a really interesting class of technology, but I feel that people are underestimating how challenging it is to make that work as a solution for this problem. And I, and I think a lot of people have imagined that it can be used as a way to, as you mentioned, a decentralized way of storing and controlling access to data. But what it seems like most companies have done that initially launched as a blockchain company has been to use the blockchain for rewarding people to participate. So paying them for their data, but not so much as a, as a storage or access mechanism, because I I think that part is, is a lot harder probably than, than initially imagined to get it to work within the complexity. As you mentioned earlier, the healthcare data ecosystem is so complex and data is siloed in all sorts of different places and it's hard enough to do this analysis on con- on conventional software um, sure. so, so to bring something else in adds another layer of complexity plus that you cannot read when we are speaking for example about genomic data we are speaking about really uh, a very uh, large uh, volume of data that it's uh, just yes. a private thing. It's not really possible to really store this uh, on-chain. So, and uh, of course, this is, again, we are speaking about very sensitive data. That's probably another, uh, indeed, um, point to considerations or another part of the problem because you know probably that also after the, uh, indeed, I mean, we always had some data protection regulation in place, but now after the implementation of the GDPR or general data protection regulation, uh, we are even more uh, indeed concerned about uh, processing uh, such a sensitive data, which health data is part of it. So we really need to really make a convincing case that the technology that we are using is really compliant with all these uh, regulations that they are in place. Right. So, so looking forward, I guess, in 10, I don't know how long you think it is, but 10, 15, 20 years, mm-hmm. if the majority of the population has had their DNA sequenced, mm-hmm. what, what predictions can you make for the future? Or maybe what ethical challenges that we haven't thought much about today will, will emerge in the future in this world where, where potentially we're all genome sequenced from birth, for example? Uh, I think uh, one uh, thing that I see that is coming is that it's uh, this rhetoric of discussion about uh, individuals should actually have control on their data. So it's really we are just moving from that uh, indeed uh, image that we had researchers that they were in charge, they were the only ones that actually uh, arranged this uh, type of genomic research that uh, so they could actually say we can have access to raw data, for example, or not. We are really moving in a direction that more and more individual, uh, first of all, they have these uh, possibilities to receive their uh, individual genome sequencing. But also, I think there is more interest uh, from their side as well to be able to be uh, indeed uh, to, to, to somehow to keep control on who can have access to these databases and uh, with whom they want to share it. So, so now the question then is, uh, which I think that was a kind of the probably uh, uh, initial ideas of like using blockchain was that do we have actually some uh, governance tools or mechanisms in place to enable individuals to be part of this governance? 
And especially, I think this is really probably an urgent question for more population-based um, uh, genomic studies, uh, that uh, they are indeed, uh, now they are collecting data, but uh, they somehow also want to involve individuals in this uh, process of the governance. But uh, always they are a little bit of, yeah, short of really tools and mechanisms to be able to make this happen. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, and it does seem like it's changing, certainly little by little. There, there are great examples. I mentioned Genomics England and the 100,000 Genomes Project. They have a lot of patient involvement mm -hmm. in the way that decisions are made at the highest level of the organization. I, th I think one thing that I would really like to see is, as you say, more technology enablement to to really put patients in the driver's seat of what happens with their data, what their, what, you know, what research they're able to participate in. Because I yeah. think at the moment we've kind of moved from people being considered research subjects, mm -hmm. which, which you know, nobody likes that word today. Now yes. maybe research participants and hopefully in the future, something more like research partners or, you know, moving closer to equal representation rather than a, a kind of, um, you know, patriarchal or, or top-down system. Yeah, exactly. So it's a bit of more like really thinking about the real involvement of the patient. And of course, this is always uh, the interest is higher uh, among patient groups because they actually want actively to be part of this uh, process. Um, and uh, yeah, I think this is something that is now somehow missing that uh, we really need to think that how we can actively really improve that. But of course, the other thing is that so so far we I mean we always thought about uh, some type of misuses that can happen to our data. I mean we are all like I mean somehow we are living our um, uh, electronic let's say footprints in uh, by just using all these different applications and you know just swiggling. I mean just uh, right everywhere. <laughs> yes, everywhere. Yeah, of course, uh, but. Um, I remember that uh, probably five, six years ago when um, I was just uh, uh, looking at this topic, it was not always very obvious that, uh, um, for example, what type of harm can be inflicted on me if I, for example, my health data are being compromised. Right. But now I think that it's more and more this the case that maybe awareness are being a little bit uh, sometimes people are more aware that uh, Indeed, they have to somehow protect also their um, sensitive data, including their health data. Um, and um, of course, now that we are seeing that all these um, yeah, uh, big uh, companies, I mean, I think it was a couple of days ago, it was uh, involvement of Amazon and you know, all these uh, big right. uh, companies in, uh, and their interest in health data. So this is also something that I'm very, yeah, I'm very interested to see that how this is going to take shape that uh, knowing that there is somehow some kind of mistrust now or like at least concern about potential misuse of data. But at the same time, there is more and more uh, from the individuals that they share a lot uh, from their health data or their indeed just generally their personal data on the uh, internet. So it's a tough like, yeah. Yeah, no, wonderful. I mean, I, I think there there are kind of a few converging <laughs> themes of, patient centricity and, and control and ownership of mm -hmm. data, but also healthcare systems and companies fully realizing the, the value of the data they have. Mm -hmm. Although I think, as you mentioned earlier, it's important to note that it really is only valuable at a certain scale and, and depth sure. of data. There's, you know, there's not really an example of a company buying a single person's 
DNA, they're really, they're really transacting in large volumes. So we have to think about group level ethics as well as individual level ethics. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Well, wonderful. Thanks. I I think we covered a lot of ground uh, in terms of recent events and ethics. Is there a place that people can keep track of you and your work? I know you're on Twitter and you have a, you have a website. If they Google Masa Shabani, you can, they could check out your Lovin website. Do you, do you want people to follow you on Twitter or? Uh, yes, yeah. So I'm on Twitter, and uh, I actually recently uh, moved to University of Ghent. Uh, so oh, right. Now I'm, uh, yeah. Uh, right. Yes, yeah. So now I uh, work in the very now more specifically on privacy law issues. Uh, so yeah, and uh, my papers and so on are often also available on ResearchGate as well. So, but yeah, I'd be happy if anybody is interested or have more questions to be in touch. So. It's always nice to talk and chat about all this stuff. Wonderful. And you got your name. You're just at Masa Shabani on Twitter, right? So Yes, yeah. That's, that's good. Not many people get their, uh, get their actual name. <laughs> yes. Well, great. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. And um, we'll uh, speak to you again soon. Thank you.